Benjamin Franklin is a major figure in the American cultural mythology of the birth of the United States, and his face is found today on the American $100 bill. His last will and testament includes the intriguing lines, To my son, William Franklin, late governor of the Jerseys, I give and devise all the lands I hold or have a right to in the province of Nova Scotia. The part he acted against me in the late war, which is of public notoriety, will account for my leaving him no more of an estate he endeavored to deprive me of. As far as wills go, that's pretty dramatic. But it begs the question, why did Ben Franklin, that preeminent figure in the American Revolution, own land in Nova Scotia in the first place? You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. The idea that there were 13, and only 13, American colonies that rose up in a revolution to overthrow British rule beginning in 1776 is seen as rather sacred today. However, things were actually a bit murkier, and there was actually a 14th colony that was teetering indecisively on whether or not to join the American Revolution. And that 14th colony was Nova Scotia. Technically, that 14th colony was also New Brunswick, which back then was still a part of Nova Scotia, and would only become separate in 1785. PEI, for its part, was also part of Nova Scotia until 1769. Ah, back when the Maritime family were all united. While there were other colonies nearby, and certainly more than 14, only Nova Scotia had seriously considered joining the Americans. Tiny St. John Island, which now we call PEI, French-speaking Quebec, and isolated Newfoundland didn't share the same close ties with America, and never really came close to joining the American Revolution. Nova Scotia, on the other hand, had much closer ties with what is now the United States. According to Smithsonian Magazine, an estimated three-quarters of Nova Scotia's population of 20,000 at the time of the Revolution were New Englanders. Many New Englanders had moved to Nova Scotia after the expulsion of the Acadians when the British offered extremely cheap lands to New Englanders in an effort to repopulate the land. There was something of a frenzy of land buying in the mid-1760s in particular when large numbers of what we would call Americans moved to Nova Scotia. One of these Americans who owned land in Nova Scotia was none other than Benjamin Franklin who was a founding father of the United States. He was a diplomat, he was an inventor, he was a scientist, he was a very prolific writer, he was a civil leader, an advocate for education, a printer, and an entrepreneur. He was also, among other things, quite an impressive fellow. And he was all the more so because he'd arrived in the United States at the age of 17 with essentially nothing. By the time of the revolution, he was a self-made millionaire. His Nova Scotian lands, however, remained undeveloped. The land he owned in Nova Scotia was located somewhere around East Hants, roughly near where Enfield is today. It was a rather massive tract of land, covering some 20,000 acres, 
He had applied for the land grant in 1765 from the Privy Council of Nova Scotia. Unlike many of the people buying land, he wasn't unfamiliar with Nova Scotia. He'd actually organized Halifax's first ever regular mail service to England one decade earlier. It's not entirely clear what his plans were to do with his Nova Scotian land. I'm sure his plans were grandiose in scope. He was certainly known for his elaborate plans, but they don't necessarily seem to have been particularly in-depth. Like many Americans, he seemed to have been caught up in a brief 1760s frenzy of land purchasing in Nova Scotia. As a man of many interests, he seemed to have lost interest in this project as soon as he got the land. Honestly, though, it's difficult to hold this against him. You see, he sent in his application to get the land in 1765. It took two years for the Privy Council of Nova Scotia to even acknowledge they had received his letter. By the point he actually received a reply in 1767, he had moved on to other interests and was probably even rather surprised to receive word that he was now the owner of 20,000 acres of land in Nova Scotia. He wasn't necessarily alone in that. In fact, many of the New Englanders who had bought land in Nova Scotia during the land-buying frenzy of 1765 seemed bewildered by what to do with it. The entire plan of buying land in Nova Scotia really hadn't ever been all that well thought out in the first place. Although the American Revolution was still years away, and the United States were still colonies themselves, the future Americans had some sort of vague imperial ambitions of starting their own little colony in Nova Scotia. This whole thing might be attributed to a generalized failure on the Americans' part to understand Nova Scotia. Despite Nova Scotia not being really very far away from what is now the United States, the Americans seem to think of it as a strange and mysterious faraway land. In fact, we can easily argue that Americans still sort of think of Nova Scotia as a strange and mysterious faraway place, even though it's not really that far away. I remember this lengthy article in the Washington Post from 2017, shortly after Donald Trump was inaugurated as president, about Americans wanting to move to Nova Scotia. That newspaper called Nova Scotia a remote island. Even more recently, during the pandemic in 2020, the New York Times went on about how Nova Scotia was an idyllic paradise, which they went so far as to call a parallel dimension. Similar to how today's Americans might idealize Nova Scotia, but perhaps change their mind about moving there after examining the cost of housing, that wave of immigration in 1765 also quickly balked at the costs of moving there. The whole American plan cooled quickly when it was realized that starting colonies was actually pretty expensive. Benjamin Franklin's parcel of land was on the opposite side of the Shubenacadie River from where Infield is today. Rather than moving to Nova Scotia himself, he hired someone named Mr. Hall to take charge of his land grant and to operate a hotel on his land, which was called the Wayside Inn. I'm not exactly sure where the Wayside Inn was, but for those who are perhaps a little too familiar with Enfield, 
it would have been more or less located around where <clears throat> Shooter's Bar and Grill is found now. Ben Franklin himself was not particularly enthused by Nova Scotia, and he didn't ever actually move there. In fact, it would not be that much of an exaggeration to say he was somewhat annoyed with Nova Scotia, calling it a wasteful exercise in nepotism, and saying that it was mere jobs for the benefit of ministerial favorites. Intriguingly, however, Franklin wasn't necessarily singling out Nova Scotia, but in fact wrote the exact same things about Georgia. He declared that Georgia was also too British to join the American Revolution, and it, like Nova Scotia, would never become an American state. Georgia is, of course, an American state today, which illustrates the fluid nature of loyalties at this time. American historians have been kind of debating for the last 200 years why Georgia joined the revolution, but Nova Scotia did not. There are plenty of answers available. The most obvious, and possibly the most upsetting one for proud Canadians, is that Nova Scotia probably would have joined the rebellion if only the Americans had tried a little harder to entice them. Or, at the very least, if the Americans had been a bit more competent in their efforts to attract the Nova Scotians to their cause. Shortly before the outbreak of the American Revolution, General George Washington did in fact dispatch two spies to Nova Scotia to assess how likely they were to join them. However, his two spies got lost. Perhaps illustrating just how mysterious the Americans found Nova Scotia to be, the two spies landed in what was then called Sudbury County of Nova Scotia. Today, we call that part of what was Nova Scotia back then, New Brunswick. And at the time, it was exceptionally sparsely populated. Instead of finding themselves in metropolitan Halifax, the spies found themselves lost in the foggy Bay of Fundy. And they soon just gave up and went home. Later, a delegation of Nova Scotians who supported joining the revolution visited General Washington personally to beg him to send forces to support a pro-American uprising they'd planned. While George Washington did briefly meet up with this delegation of Nova Scotians, he was preoccupied by a new British fleet that was then arriving in Boston. George Washington refused to send troops to Nova Scotia, claiming that would make them look like the aggressor, when, according to him, they were fighting for their independence. He wrote in a letter, I apprehend such an enterprise to be inconsistent with the principles on which the colonies have proceeded. This wasn't, strictly speaking, accurate. The Americans had already invaded Quebec, and they still partly occupied it even as George Washington penned that little note. His problem seemed to be that the Quebecers had defeated the Americans, and he couldn't risk another defeat in Nova Scotia just as there was a new British fleet arriving in Boston. And so the Nova Scotian delegation returned home without any promises of American military support. Without that military support, their subsequent attempted uprising in Nova Scotia slash New Brunswick, which was called Eddie's Rebellion, met with a swift defeat. Despite the defeat, the uprising and the close connections between New England and Nova Scotia shows the personal impact of the revolution on individuals and families. Nowhere was this more clear than with Benjamin Franklin's own family. 
Well, if Benjamin Franklin was indeed a top leader on one side of the conflict, his only son William was a top leader on the other. That son William Franklin is a mysterious figure, mostly because his father obscured his origins. Benjamin Franklin was famously quite the womanizer, and it's unclear who his son's actual mother is, but she was certainly not his wife. Despite the son not being legitimate, Benjamin Franklin did accept him and raised him as his own. However, in what seems to be a curious effort to make his son seem a bit more legitimate, the father obscured his son's real birth year, so we're not entirely sure his real age. He was certainly considerably, considerably older than Benjamin said he was, though. This has led to some parts of the big American mythology around him which aren't necessarily accurate. For example, Ben Franklin's experiments with electricity are well known in American culture, and there are dozens and dozens of famous portraits in the finest American art galleries showing an old Benjamin Franklin with a young William Franklin as a little boy when they did that famous kite experiment. While William was indeed with his father during that experiment with electricity, he was certainly not a little boy. He would have been in his mid-twenties by then. As they grew older, the father and the son went in opposite directions, politically speaking. William grew up to be the governor of New Jersey, while his father was the governor of Pennsylvania. After the revolution began, the son would stay loyal to the British, while the father would become the leader of the rebels. The son was thrown into prison for two years, while the father was living a luxurious lifestyle in Paris, acting as a top diplomat for the revolutionaries. William would eventually be released in a prisoner exchange swap, and, completely unfazed by his imprisonment, promptly became a leader of the British in New York. He ran a spy network until the war's end when he fled to England, never to return. Like many families who were torn apart by the war, the father and the son would never truly reconcile. A few years before his death in 1790, Benjamin wrote to his son, Nothing has ever hurt me so much and affected me with such keen sensations as to find myself deserted in my old age by my only son. And not only deserted, but to find him taking up arms against me in a cause wherein my good fame, fortune, and life were all at stake. The granting of this Nova Scotian land to his son William should be seen as a part of this failure to reconcile. It was intended as a passive-aggressive slap in the face. Benjamin Franklin had died extremely wealthy. When he wrote his will and divided his vast estate, the only thing he left his son was that worthless Nova Scotian land. He'd never done anything with it, he never developed it, and he wasn't even entirely sure that he really owned it anymore since the terms of his buying it was that he would have to move there within 10 years of receiving the land. Obviously, he never moved to rural Nova Scotia. And so Benjamin Franklin's, as he called it, worthless Nova Scotian lands work as a metaphor, as a symbol of the deep divisions that tore apart countries and families alike, and a conflict which came closer to seeing Nova Scotia join the United States than many Canadians might be comfortable with. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard.
produced by Jordan Lozier.